Hebrews chapter 11 verses 39 through 40. The 43rd talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on June 18th, 2017 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 16, Translation, Installment, 2017, number 4, accompanies this talk. We've looked at uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, and he Hebrews 11 is an example after example after example after example of people who had belief, what, what he calls belief, which I think is a shorthand for a sanctified heart that is open to God and receptive to God such that it believes the truth and especially believes the promises of God, as we saw in Hebrews 11. And that's, that's the mark or the characteristic, the attribute of a person who's going to be granted eternal life in the end. He is dikaios in the eyes of God. He's um, acceptable to God, acceptable in the eyes of God to be a recipient of God's mercy. Well, we, he went over a num number of examples what we learned about the sort of person who will inherit eternal life by virtue of his belief, notice that every one of the attributes of saving belief that we see exemplified in Hebrews 11 involves one or more of three things. Belief that God indeed is the one and only author and governor of all of reality. He's the only God. And by God, we mean that, that being, that reality that shapes and molds and governs and, and basically is the author of everything that happens in all of reality. So it's belief in that God. It's belief that God's nature is such that he will keep whatever promises he has made. So belief in the faithfulness of God. And then thirdly, belief that what God has promised is valuable and is worth more than anything else that anyone or anything has to offer. So all, every example we looked at contains at least one of those, of those features. Now we come finally to, what is it, 1140. And all these, even though they had been commended, this is paragraph 80 in my translation, if you're following there. And all these, even though they had been commended by their belief, did not obtain the promise because God had foreseen something that was better for us, namely, that they would not realize the final fulfillment of the promise without us. Okay, what this means is really quite straightforward, I think, but it's so straightforward that this statement, the, this statement is pretty invisible. I, I've read this over and over and over again a number of times in my life, and it hasn't impacted me particularly at all. I mean, it just seems to be, yeah, okay, yeah, you already said that. Um, but what I realized this time through is this is a, this is a paradigm-busting bomb. If we really take what Paul is saying at face value and take it seriously, there are a couple of paradigms that get exploded by this, and that's what I want to explore today. But just at the surface level, what he's saying is that we had this long list of people that he, that he talked about in chapter 11. They had belief, and their belief made them dikaios in God's eyes. It commended them to God. But even though they were people who had belief, the promises that God made to them, they, didn't, they weren't fulfilled. They went to their death without seeing the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to them. Why? Because God had foreseen something else, uh, that, and that something else was better for us. In other words, the plan of God, and the, the reason they didn't get it earlier is because God's plan did not include the plan of giving it to them earlier. 
the plan that God had required in order to stay true to the plan, that it would come later after their death sometime. And then he comments, he had foreseen something else, namely a something else that was better for us. So he's saying it was fortunate for us that God's plan did not include fulfilling the promise earlier. And what he's thinking here is, if God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham earlier, then he, Paul, and his contemporaries would never have come into existence to be able to be a part of that same promise. Because look at what he goes on to say. Namely, that they would not realize the final fulfillment of the promise without us. So it, the reason it's better for us is because we get to enjoy this promised reward along with them. Um, we, wouldn't, we potentially wouldn't have even come into existence had God made, uh, fulfilled his promise to them, and then that would have, been, that would have meant his promise was complete, his plan was complete, his purposes were finished, and we're not even in existence. Now, that's what he's saying. So let's talk about what, how that explodes certain paradigms that are pretty entrenched in Christian culture, I think. First of all, the paradigm of what I call the heaven paradigm. The paradigm, what it, the question is, what is God's promised reward? What is this blessing that we're waiting for. Before I get there, notice that the, the nature of what Paul says in paragraph 80, verses 39 40, the nature of what he says makes it clear that the promise that he's talking about, and notice he uses the singular promise here. Now, he could use the pro- singular promise and mean each promise respectively for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Noah, Enoch, he could talk about the promise to each of them individually. But I think if we look at the argument that he, that he makes here and that he goes on to make in chapter 12, it's pretty clear that his perspective is it's one in the same promise that is in view for everybody that he's talking about here. So he's talking about the fulfillment of the promise. Well, what is the promise? The ultimate promise, the ultimate reward the final and ultimate blessing that God has in mind for each and every human being that God has chosen for himself and that believes. So um, that's the context in which I think we need to understand what he's saying here. So in Christian culture, there's a paradigm that I think that predominates, and it's what I call the heaven paradigm. And what do I mean by that? When we die, we're talking about the ultimate reward now, What is this ultimate reward? When we die, we go to heaven. Now, there are different variations in the secular world. All you have to do to go to heaven is die. In in the Christian culture, you have to meet certain necessary requirements, belief in Jesus or whatever a particular Christian denomination lays out as the necessary requirement. You have to meet that requirement in order to go to heaven Otherwise, you go to hell. That's all part of this paradigm here. Now, there's different variations on how heaven is viewed in this paradigm. In the Middle Ages, the uh, heaven, or the equivalent of heaven, was the beatific vision. What happens when you die? You finally see God. And seeing God was this glorious, perhaps ecstatic, perpetually joy-filled experience where by just gazing at God, my whole being and my whole existence is fulfilled forever and ever and ever and ever. I won't get into the historical reasons behind that. It's rooted in Platonism primarily, Neoplatonism primarily. But nonetheless, in the Middle Ages, that was the prevailing view. When you die as a Christian, you go and you experience the beatific, the blessed vision. And that's the vision of God, God seeing God forever. In evangelical circles, it's not at all unusual for people to describe this reward, this blessing that awaits us to go to heaven and be perpetually in worship of God. 
I can't tell you how much that scared the hell out of me when I was little. (laughs) That sounds so boring. What is that? What are we talking about there? What does it mean to perpetually worship God? Um, it, it, see, it's so static. It's so one-dimensional. It's so without any texture to it. And it's unbiblical. I mean, it's not what the Bible teaches. But however we got there, that's a view of, of heaven that is uh, not uncommonly cited by people. Or m- more promising is that heaven is an eternal connection, closeness, intimacy with God, or an eternal connection with his love. Okay, that's more promising. But again, that it's not, it's not really filled out. It's left relatively vague. Some people would argue that it's perpetual leisure, no more toil. So we just get to kick back and, and relax. Um, <laughs> my, grand, my granddaughter the other day uh, Wendy asked ask one of the twins what she wanted to be when she grew up. I want to sit on the sofa and watch movies and drink beer. That's heaven. You know? Perpetual, perpetual leisure. No more toil. But also along with that, no more tears, no more sorrow, only joy and happiness. That, that's heaven. But I think probably most popularly would be Heaven is a life of eternal happiness in a heavenly realm, the nature of which existence defies our imagination. But there will be no tears, no sorrow, only joy and happiness. But we don't really know. We don't really know the nature of the heavenly existence, but it's going to be great. Okay, that paradigm, that's what I'm calling the heaven paradigm. We die, and if we've met the necessary requirements, we go to heaven by whatever conception of heaven we might have. That paradigm necessarily implies a particular worldview. And the worldview that it implies is that reality exists on two planes, the earthly plane and the heavenly plane. And those two planes exist in parallel to one another. And the most important feature of them existing in parallel to one another is that two people can exist simultaneously in two different realms, two different planes, two different levels of existence, if you will. I exist here right now in this earthly realm, but my deceased son lives right here and now in the other realm in heaven. I cannot have any interaction with my deceased son, but he exists just the same. It is, it is just that he's in a different realm, a better realm, a better one. That's the heaven paradigm with two planes of existence. And if we're not here, at least potentially, we can be there. Uh, if you believe Hallmark, you'll definitely be there. If you don't believe Hallmark, it's only some of us are going to be there. But... That's a real possibility. My contention is that these two verses, or paragraph 80 in my translation, they explode this paradigm completely. Note that in paragraph 80, it's concerned with one and the same promise of every believer throughout all time, the ultimate blessing, the ultimate reward. I've already commented on on that. He says that they would not realize the final fulfillment of the promise without us. Well, what promise are we talking about? We're talking about a promise that we are looking forward to, that we can find the fulfillment, see the fulfillment of, as well as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and everyone else that he mentions in the chapter. So whatever the fulfillment of the promise is to the men of old, we, and by that we mean Paul and his contemporaries, at least, because that's who's writing the letter, we will get in on it too. Now, we recognize that we recognize this too. That's why we so readily think that Paul is talking about heaven in the traditional Christian paradigm. I mean, it's difficult to read that chapter without realizing he's boiled all these people from the Old Testament into people who have been promised one and the same promise, and it comes to the same promise that we're looking forward to and that we put our hope in. We, it's kind of easy to recognize that intuitively. So we think, well, what is the promise that I'm looking forward to? Heaven. 
Well, then that must be what Abraham was looking forward to. That must be what Isaac was looking forward to and everybody in the list. And we kind of, looking backwards, we read our hope into their hope. Okay? But this paragraph presents us with a problem for the traditional Christian paradigm, I think. It makes it impossible to believe that Paul embraces the traditional Christian paradigm of going to heaven as the ultimate reward if we pay attention to his language and pay attention to what he's actually asserting here. Notice to get to in the, uh, in the first place, he says, they did not obtain the reward. Abraham didn't obtain it. Isaac didn't obtain it. How do we fit that into our paradigm, into our Christian theology? Every one of us, if we were off guard and, and weren't thinking about this verse and what this implies, if you, to, if you were to ask, is Abraham in heaven? What Christian is going to say? No. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, Abraham's in heaven. Moses is in heaven. Isaac, Jacob, they're in heaven. Samson's in, well, Samson maybe not. He had to get a haircut first. But um, all these people are in heaven. But Paul says... They haven't obtained the promise yet. So at the very least, we're going to have to put a fix on our paradigm. It's not, it's not, heaven is not some place that we go to when we die. Heaven, at the very minimum, has to be some place that we will go to together with everyone else who believes at some f- future point, at some date in the future. Because Paul says... They ain't going to get it till we get it. We're going to, they can't get it without us. It's going to happen simultaneously. When Abraham goes, if we stick with the paradigm, when Abraham goes to heaven is when Paul goes to heaven is when we will go to heaven. And that has not occurred yet, not in the lifetime of Paul. Okay. He also says, because God had foreseen something that was better for us, namely that they... Abraham, Isaac, and so on, would not realize the final fulfillment of the promise without us. What sense does it make for Paul to be saying that it's better for Paul that Abraham didn't go to heaven until Paul gets to go? I mean, have, have any of you ever thought, boy, I want to hurry up and die and beat my little brother because I don't want him to get there before I do? I mean, would that, it would be an infantile kind of competitiveness that would ever think that it could possibly be better to get on some good thing for all of eternity that's of, that's of inestimable value to get on that, in on that before somebody else does. Are we not content to get it at all? And would that not be Paul's perspective? This is not a competition. This is not a race to see who gets there first. It's um, the question of whether we get there at all. And all of us would be just incredibly grateful to be able to get the promised reward of going to heaven. So it doesn't make any sense for Paul to say and write what he writes here if he has our paradigm. Well, it's sure a good thing that Abraham didn't get to get there ahead of me because it's good for me that he didn't get there first without me. That's not what he's saying. That can't be what he's saying. That makes no sense. Okay, So the heaven paradigm has two significant problems being reflected in in Paul's statement here. It doesn't seem to be reflected in his statement. Now, there's another paradigm. This is less common, but I believed it most of my life. Most of my life as a Bible teacher, this was my paradigm. So um, I'm going to mention it. It's the, the paradigm of replacement theology. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the replacement theology, in a nutshell, is in the Old Testament, you see all this kind of, all these promises, all these claims that are made, where God has come and chosen the ethnic people of Israel, the Jews, and has declared them his chosen people. So the chosen people are this ethnic group. Jesus comes along, he's the Messiah, he fulfills promises that were made by the prophets and so on, but that ethnic group rejected him, they did not embrace him and accept them as their king and as their Messiah, 
And at that point, God had had it up to here with his chosen people, the Jews. So he rejects, he, he forsakes them. That is, he says, okay, I've tried. I've tried to let you be my people. I've tried to make you my people. I've been patient, but no more. I've had enough. The, the new people of God are now those people who believe in my Messiah, whether they belong to the ethnic people of Israel or are Gentiles instead. It's going to be this Jewish-Gentile conglomerate of all kinds of different people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that now becomes the people of God. That's the new people of God. Or, to use a phrase out of Galatians, the true Israel. The true Israel has nothing to do with the Jews. It has everything to do with whether or not you believe in Jesus. I don't think that's a right reading of Galatians, but um, that, that's the way it gets put. Now, how, I, I believe that for decades. I mean, that, it just, just seemed really natural that, of course, of course, that's what is going on here. So in the first place, the whole idea that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was the last straw, that seemed entirely plausible to me. That, that seemed plausible, so that, that played into my willingness to accept this replacement theology. But I think the other thing that was at play is that I, at the same time, also embraced the heaven paradigm. I mean, my, my kind of automatic default view of what, hap- what is our ultimate blessing is I'm going to go into eternity. Of all the variations I listed, it was the last variation. I'm going to go into eternity and have eternal existence in the eternal realm, uh, and it will be a wonderful existence, unimaginable. I, I can't even imagine what it will be, but, it, but it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be rewarding. That was my paradigm. Well, if the ultimate blessing is going to heaven after one dies, and if God has spelled out the way that any individual, Jew or Gentile, any individual, any human individual, can obtain that blessing of going to heaven, and it's through Jesus, of course, then what possible reason could there be for God having any concern for the geopolitics of the world after that? I mean, it just seemed odd it just seemed bizarre, in fact, that God's, God would still want to turn around and literally fulfill the promises that he'd made to Abraham when we get to the point where the gospel of the, the way um, to find the eternal blessing, the ultimate blessing that God wants to give, has been revealed through Jesus. And that's true for Gentiles. It's true for Jews. Isn't that what the New Testament is telling us? So, really, God's, God's still interested in geopolitics after that? Uh, it doesn't make any sense. It seems odd and bizarre. My understanding of the New Testament seemed complete and whole, lacking in meaning if I, just didn't, if I just understood what was required for me and anyone else to go to heaven. I mean, that's what the New Testament is teaching. So, again, how did God literally fulfilling his promises to Israel, have any relevance to me or to anyone else now since Jesus has come. So even if it was relevant to a particular ethnic group at a particular time in history, certainly it was not relevant to me, had nothing to do with me. So that was all part of my heaven paradigm that was at play when I would read the New Testament and when I would read Hebrews 11. And there's a third thing at play, I was inclined to read the New Testament as not having much of anything to say about the literal fulfillment of God's promises to the Jews. I mean, you can go for long stretches in the New Testament, and it doesn't even come up. What about the promises to Abraham? What about the, I mean, even, even if he does talk about the promises of Abraham, he's talking about the eternal life in the eternal, uh, in the eternal realm that is open to both Jew and Gentile. So he seems to be reading those promises as not literally about land and lots of, lots of kids and prosperity and protection and all that stuff that you read in the Old Testament. Paul doesn't seem to be reading the promises that way. So 
being inclined to read the New Testament that way, that bolstered my sense that the literal fulfillment of God's promises to the Jews had ceased to be a matter of God's interest and concern. They might, might have been at one point, but they were no longer of interest to God. He just wasn't interested. Now, why did I read the New Testament that way? I think there's two parts, two things that I think faked me out. In part, it's related to the fact that the New Testament did not concern itself much with the literal fulfillment of God's promises to the Jews. That is, not much relative to its other concerns. It didn't concern itself much with that for various historical reasons. Specifically, it wasn't the nature of the controversies into which the New Testament writings were being written. Whether or not God was going to literally fulfill his promises to the Jews was not controversial to anybody. And since it wasn't controversial to anybody, you don't have Paul writing to defend that or to argue for that or to explain that or any, any of the sort. But how and but whether we have to keep the law of Moses, that's a hot topic. It's a hot controversy. So Paul writes letters, Galatians and Romans especially, but Ephesians and Colossians as well. He writes to address that issue and to defend the position that it's okay to be a Gentile living like a Gentile and still be an authentic, bona fide Jesus follower. But he has to defend that reason because there's a whole lot of believing, Messiah-believing Jews who don't, who don't buy that. So he has to argue with them. Well, he didn't have to argue with anybody, at least anybody on the, on the scene at that time, about whether you expected God's fulfillment of his promises to Abraham to be literally fulfilled. I think probably everyone concerned would be, uh, <laughs> isn't that what it means to fulfill a promise? They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't even be in the same space that we're in on this issue. So it doesn't get written about as much. But the other part of it is that it's related to the fact that what we see and what we don't see in the New Testament, for example, which is, is due to how we read a text, what we see and what we do, don't see is impacted greatly by the paradigm that we already have when we go looking at the text. Well, I had the heaven paradigm in place. So what did I see? I saw heaven. I didn't see the literal fulfillment of the promises to Abraham being spoken of by the New Testament writers because I didn't expect to see it. Why would they be talking about that? They don't believe in that, right? So why would I expect them to be talking about it? So in part, my own lenses were, were distorting the way I was reading the New Testament. As I read it today, I would argue there's a whole lot more in the New Testament about the literal fulfillment of the promises to Abraham than I ever saw before, especially the book of Acts and here in Hebrews, in this very verse that we're talking about, and this very chapter. Uh, I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about in this chapter. But let's look about how did I deal with Hebrews 11 before? Well, when the promises of Hebrews 11 the fulfillment of which are equated with the fulfilled promise that Paul awaits as well as as the men of old, when the promises of Hebrews 11 concern land and a great nation or a, a great people and other geopolitical realities of one kind or another, I tend to do, do one of two things. One, shrug my shoulders and determine not to be bothered by the problem because I was confident that the go-to-heaven paradigm was the right one, I was just content to assume that somehow Paul was saying, what, what Paul was saying was compatible with and supportive of the go-to-heaven paradigm. But Jack, he talks about the land. Yeah, yeah, heaven. Somehow, I mean, I don't know how, but somehow that's heaven. So I, I, just, I just wasn't going to let myself be bothered by the problem. And if, if, I, if I tried to think about it at all, rather than just shrug my shoulders, I would assume that the land and the great nation and uh, prosperity in the land and protection from your enemies in the land and a king ruling in righteousness over a righteous people and everything that the Old Testament says about that were metaphors 
for something that had to do with eternal life in heaven. I'm not alone in that. (laughs) There's a whole church out there that very readily makes that move and, and believes that. And I did for decades. Sure, why not? I'm a New Testament scholar. I'll let somebody else worry about the Old Testament. And then I would, along with other people, see confirmation of that. Well, these are just metaphors in the way that he described it here. Uh, See if I can find it. Okay. As to belief, he lived, speaking of Abraham, this is uh, paragraph 63, 11, 9, and 10. As to belief, he lived as a foreigner in the land of promise, dwelling in tents along with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was awaiting a city that had foundations, the architect and builder of which would be God. Well, God is not the architect and builder of any city on earth. Surely that's heaven. Surely that's the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Later, it says, in the midst of, this is 11, 13, and 16, paragraph 65, in the midst of their belief, these men all died, not having received the promises, having rather seen and greeted them while they were still a long way off, and having confessed that they were strangers and sojourners on the land of promise. Now, those who say such things make it evident that they long for their homeland. But if they were reminiscing about that homeland from which they had come out, they had the opportunity to return. Now, in fact, they want a better one. That is, and then most English translations have, a heavenly one. And as I argued when we looked at that, I think he means one given by, granted by, created by heaven, namely God. Therefore, as for them, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. Again, the new Jerusalem in the eternal uh, age to come. And we could go on, but there are, there, are, uh, there are phrases in there that kind of, if you're not thinking all that carefully about what Paul's argument is, it seems really easy to say, well, he, he's just talking about Abraham wasn't really interested in the land, he was really interested in going to heaven. Abraham wasn't really interested in settling in the land, he was just biding his time till he died so that he could go to heaven. It's very easy to think that Paul is just saying something like that. Okay, but there's problems with the replacement theology in relation to this paragraph 80. Paul clearly does seem to be talking about the land and the great nation promises. Did I say not? He clearly does not seem to be taking them as metaphors. Take Isaac, for example. When he gives the example of Isaac, what was Isaac's grand uh, act of faith? When I die, take my body back to Canaan. Isaac, you're going to heaven. What difference does it make whether you go to heaven from Egypt or Canaan? In fact, you've already gone to heaven by the time we take your body to to Canaan. What on earth possible difference does that make? Uh, Paul is citing that as an incredible example of belief on the part of Isaac. Why, Why is there any belief there? Because he believes the promise that that piece of real estate is where it's going to be happening. So he wants his body there, as we will see, so that when the body is resurrected, he's where it's at. He's where it's happening. That's the only way that makes sense as an act of belief, I would argue. Joseph, same thing. Joseph wants his bones taken back to the land of Canaan. And then also uh, in that, well, no, it's in the the same context as Isaac, I'm sorry, the Isaac part about taking his body back, that's in Genesis, but not in Hebrews, is it? I don't remember. Anyway, Joseph, it's his bones. He wants his bones back in Canaan for all those reasons that I just articulated. Jericho, why is it the big deal that they believe God and march around Jericho and in obedience to his instruction and Jericho falls? Because that's the foothold in that land that God has promised to give them one day. It's a down payment. It's, a, it's an anticipation of something that God is going to do when he keeps his promise. Uh, it's, not, it's not just having victory over some city. It's a city in the land of Canaan. So the only possible support for those being metaphors is the mistranslation and misreading 
of those couple of statements that I just looked at about a heavenly, a heavenly city and so on. So because my reading of Hebrews 11 was closely tied to the go-to-heaven paradigm, um, that's the only way I could see it as compatible with the heavenly paradigm. But paragraph 80 makes no sense under the heaven paradigm. It requires, absolutely requires a different paradigm. It requires a paradigm where the promised blessing or the reward is not an individual thing at all, but a corporate thing. And I I just have never understood that my whole life as a Bible teacher. The promise that awaits us is not that I am going to uh, enjoy eternal life. The promise that awaits us is that the people of God are going to enjoy eternal life as the people of God. That's a corporate reality, not an individual reality. That's why Paul can say, if the promise is fulfilled before I come to existence, like, I lose out. I don't get to go there at all. Because the people of God is a certain set of individuals, and although it, uh, it, once, that, once that thing comes to fruition and is fully and completely fulfilled, there's no adding individuals to it any longer. If you weren't there before, you're not going to be there after. So the only way we can make sense of the claim that he's making in 80 is if he's seeing this as some kind of corporate reality. It's a paradigm that involves the promise of a literal land and a great people. That's what, that's what all, all these guys have been preoccupied in this list going down through chapter 11. So the best candidate, unless you can show me another one that fits the that fits the qualifications for the paradigm that's in view by Paul, the best candidate is what I'm calling the messianic kingdom paradigm. The ultimate promised blessing is that I will see and experience the messianic kingdom along with all the other people of God. That's the promise. That's the blessing. That was the promise to Abraham and all the patriarchs. That was the promise to Moses all the prophets and everybody in between, and that's the promise to us. The day is going to come where we will see and experience the messianic kingdom. Okay, what do I mean by the messianic kingdom? That gets filled out, of course, by all the other prophets and the Psalms and uh, the, the whole Old Testament. The messianic kingdom is where Jesus comes, is installed as king over Israel, in the land that God promised Abraham, in the land of Canaan. He installs him as king there over his people, the chosen people, Israel. He gives them prosperity in the land, uh, unprecedented prosperity. He protects them from their enemies. He rules over them in righteousness. They are a righteous people. And the first time in history, uh, God functions as their God, as they truly and faithfully function as his people. Just as God promised from the very beginning, from Abraham himself, I'll make your seed a great seed, and they will be my pe- I will be their God, and they will be my people. It gets reiterated in, Deuteronomy, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, and it's a stream that runs from then out on throughout the whole scriptures. That, that's the messianic kingdom than anything else that the prophets have to say about that. People will be long-lived in that kingdom. It it will be a a, a radically new kind of era in history of unprecedented peace. There won't be war. The the thing that all the folk, folk songs are written about. They won't know more, no more. They won't know war, no more, no more. I mean, that, that's, that's the messianic kingdom. That's a part of our history. It's in our history that that's going to take place. But notice that the messianic kingdom paradigm, by its very nature, is incompatible with replacement theology. Because the, the, the very picture of the messianic kingdom is that it is all centered in the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, um, Israel, and as as having hegemony over all of the nations of the earth, 
all of their, their fortunes completely go and undergo a great upheaval. And instead of Israel being under the foot of the Gentiles, the Gentiles will be under the feet of the, of the Jews in that day. They, they will reign. They will rule with Jesus as their king and their head. So it's all focused on the Jewish people. Now, do Gentiles have a part of that? Well, the prophets say yes. There will be many people from all the nations who will flock to Jerusalem to do homage to, to God and the king and so on. So, yeah, there will be believing Gentiles as well. But the emphasis is going to be on what God is doing to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people in that day. Well, the Messianic kingdom paradigm is consistent with paragraph 80 in a way that the heavenly paradigm is not, and therefore that replacement theology is not. The millennial kingdom paradigm is perfectly consistent with the claim that the promise to Abraham has not yet been fulfilled in the time of Paul. The go-to-heaven paradigm is not consistent with that claim, but the messianic kingdom paradigm is perfectly incompatible because the messianic kingdom is not here yet. If Paul were writing today, he'd still write the same thing. It has, it has not been brought to fruition yet. Note, that has another implication. The promise that God made is not fulfilled when Jesus came into the world at his incarnation. The advent of Jesus did not fulfill the promise. The death of Jesus did not fulfill the promise. The resurrection of Jesus did not fulfill the promise. The ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God did not fulfill the promise because all that happened before Paul's writing this. And from Paul's perspective, Abraham hasn't got the fulfillment of his promise yet. Also, the messianic kingdom paradigm is perfectly consistent with the claim that God's plan was such that the final fulfillment of the promise could not happen without Paul. Why? Because in the messianic kingdom paradigm, It's the people of God, this corporate body of individuals who are going to be given the reward of dwelling in, living in, and being a part of the kingdom of God on earth. The heavenly paradigm is not consistent with that plan. Paul doesn't need to be there when Abraham goes to heaven. That's that's just not necessary. So the millennial kingdom paradigm is perfectly consistent with the claim that God's plan was such that it was better for Paul that Abraham not have seen the final fulfillment of the promise to him. Because if the final fulfillment of the promise of the kingdom of God was complete and final and brought about, then nobody else is going to be added to it. Paul probably wouldn't even be created and come into existence if that were the case. So... uh, What Paul's saying makes perfectly good sense if he's anticipating this kingdom that is coming that he wants to see and experience along with all the men of old who are looking forward to the same thing. Now, final comment. Note that the messianic kingdom paradigm includes something along the lines of of the go-to-heaven paradigm. Let Let me explain. The messianic kingdom paradigm, as I would understand it from the prophets, is that Jesus returns in history, and that is the watershed event in all of history. In fact, it's the watershed event in all of created reality. That's what faked me out for so many years. I thought the watershed event in created reality is when you do away with this heavens and earth, this created reality, you burn it up with fire, and you create a new heavens and a new earth and an eternal realm, an eternal age, and we are, we are dwelling there. That that's the watershed event that demarcates the before, the most important before and after. So it wasn't the coming of Jesus that's a big deal. It's the uh, demarcation between the present created reality and the eternal created reality. That's why people like me are really ready to say, well, that's when Jesus returns. At that watershed event, that's when Jesus returns. Because surely he's coming at the watershed event, but the watershed event is between present created reality and eternal created reality. No, that's not how Paul looks at it. That's not the watershed event. The watershed event is before the kingdom of God and after the kingdom of God. 
before the kingdom of God is a reality and after the kingdom of God is a reality. Everything is new when the kingdom of God becomes fulfilled, becomes, becomes present. But having said that, the kingdom of God, it begins in history, but it doesn't end with history. That is, it begins in the history of this present created realm, but when this present created realm gets destroyed, that's not the end of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God keeps right on going. How? By transitioning to an eternal form in a new heavens, in a new earth, which is imperishable, uh, is eternal, and will never go away. But if I, if I am looking forward to the kingdom of God... Part of what I'm looking forward to is the final stage of the kingdom of God, which is almost exactly how I used to define going to heaven. Going into an eternal existence where I will, I will dwell eternally in a, in a, and have an experience that is unimaginable to me. I, it's going to be glorious, but I have no idea what it's going to be like because it, it defies my imagination. Well, that's what the final stage of the kingdom of God is actually going to be. It's exactly what I've always thought I was hoping in. But the difference is, uh, in the Messianic kingdom paradigm, there's no way to get there without going through the kingdom of God that will be established in history, in, in present created reality. I am first going to see and experience the kingdom of God in Israel, in the land of Israel, with Jesus as king here in history, I'm going to see and appreciate the promises that were made to Abraham literally being fulfilled by God in history, in time and space. And then after that has all been played out, which is going to be over a long span of time, but after all that is played out, then the day is going to come where God will destroy this present created reality that was not made to be eternal and he will replace it with an eternal created reality, and the kingdom of God will go on forever and ever, unmolested and undisturbed. Which puts a statement that Paul makes in Romans 11 in in an interestingly new light. Rusty Rexius mentioned this in a context that I was in and got me thinking. Remember in Romans 11, Paul talks about how we Gentiles have been grafted into the trunk. And the trunk are basically all the promises and the covenants and everything Jewish coming out of the Old Testament. And my tendency has always been to read that as, well, yeah, we're we're grafted into the trunk in that we get eternal life. But, of course, none of that other stuff has anything to do with us. But under my new understanding of this messianic kingdom, yes, it does. I'm grafted into all that stuff just as much as I'm grafted into eternal life. I'm going to see the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. I'm going to see Jesus on the throne. I'm going to see him reign not only over Israel but the whole world and bring righteousness and peace to the world and justice will be done and all the things that the prophets do to describe that millennial kingdom. I'm going to see it. I'm going to participate in it. I'm going to be a part of it. I will have a role in it. I don't know what it is, but I'll have a role in it. I'm going to be the heresy checker. That's, it. That's my role. Okay, I think I covered it. Questions, comments, objections, complaints? Thanks, Jack. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was a very clear case Good. for that. So thank you for putting that together. One of the things that keeps being a sticking point for me mm-hmm. with the picture you're painting of the messianic kingdom is, well, you characterize replacement theology as believing that the promises are for like this conglomerate of believing Jews and Gentiles. And it's hard for me to not see the Israel to which those promises in the messianic picture paradigm that you're painting... I mean, sorry, say that again, just repeat that. So thing. then you're, you're painting a picture of the messianic paradigm. And I'm wanting to, I keep having this sticking point of wanting to make the Israel that those lit promises are literally fulfilled to in the way you described, 
that conglomerate of believing Jews and Gentiles. So that, because it seems to me like the New Testament is painting this picture of what is it that makes Abraham the father of the people? Like, what is the nature of that relationship? Blood? No, it's his belief. And so the people that those promises are given to, ethnicity is not as important as the fact of their belief. So that's kind of my sticking point. I'd like to hear you comment on on that issue. I'm not quite sure I'm clear on why it's a sticking point. Let let me say something, maybe maybe this. Um, So the true Israel in, in Galatians, for example... Uh, or, or the way Paul argues it in Romans chapter 9. Not all Israel is Israel. So just, you're right, it's not, it's not bloodline that determines that you are a member of Israel who's going to see and experience and enjoy the kingdom of God on earth. It's not bloodline. It, it has to be combined with belief. It's only Jews who believe who are truly believe, truly Jews who are going to inherit the promises to Abraham. So, yeah, you can't rule belief out. That's, a, that's an integral part of defining who it is that, that gets to be there. But there's a difference between true Israel, which is believing Israel, and what in Ephesians he calls the pleroma, the entire, the full complement of the people of God, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. Um, the full complement of the people of God is, is that conglomerate of Jews and Gentiles. But true Israel is true Israel, are the believing Jews, the authentic believing Jews. Now, what? Okay, so you're seeing this, a distinction between this true Israel to whom the promises are made, and so there aren't really any promises made to the play Roma. Except that they get grafted into the promises Made, made to the Jews. Yeah, and I think what, what I find, maybe the, this is the more true nature of the sticking point, is imagining kind of this future fulfillment. Imagining our world, imagining a nation of, in the Middle East, Israel, and this thing happening that you're describing. Is God going to change everybody in that nation's hearts before that happens? Like, will there... How? Well, if I'm if yeah. I'm right, um, the the prophecy that captures it best is the is Malachi, the last chapter of Malachi, where he talks about the sun of righteousness rising, that is a blazing firm, furnace to the wicked and unrighteous, but it has healing on its wings. So the righteous are going to to see the coming of the sun of righteousness as a as a wonderful. Uh, event of healing. The unrighteous are going to be destroyed by the coming of the Son of Righteousness. So in the end, when we get right down to the end of history, Israel is literally purified. It's purged of its unrighteous individuals. They're destroyed. They're, they're judged and destroyed. What's left behind are, are the righteous remnant that God intends to be the seed generation for the me- historical messianic kingdom of God. They're going to be the people that begin to, to grow and multiply and become the... Uh, and it's at that point, from then on, everybody in the nation is sanctified. There are no... There are virtually no... At least they don't stick around. There are virtually no sanctified Jews that exist after that. I'm sorry, unsanctified Jews that exist after that. They are all sanctified. They are all righteous. Not true of the Gentiles during that same time. Jesus is, the, is in the throne ruling in Jerusalem. The Gentiles don't dare take up arms against him because they saw what happened when he came. He, he has power to destroy any enemies of God with, with a word. So they don't dare take up arms. That's why there's going to be peace on earth. It's not that there are no enemies of God left. There are plenty of enemies of God left. But they dare not, you know, they dare not act on it yet. Until, according to Revelation, Satan is released from the abyss and goes out and deceives the nations. And that's when the Gentile nations come up 
to make war against Jesus, the Lamb. And when they come up to make war against him, God just says, this is the end of history now. Uh, This is the culmination of history. He wipes out all the enemies of God and those of us who have already started our eternal existence. Because remember, when Jesus comes, you and I as children, as believers in Jesus, whether alive or in the grave, you and I take on immortality at that point. We begin our eternal existence. And having begun, we begin our eternal existence to... It's, it's gonna, we're going to experience different things, the historical messianic kingdom of God here on earth, making transition to the transition to the eternal kingdom of God, but we're there through all of it, and we exist through all of it. And that's a conglomeration of Jews and Gentiles that does that, right? But in the geopolitics of, of history, when God's promises to the Jews are being fulfilled, those same promises don't apply to the Gentiles, There are Gentile nations that are not experiencing the same prosperity and the same abundance and protection and so on that the Jews are. But if I'm hearing you right, it does apply to all believers. Well, I I may be wrong. I'm assuming you can still make national distinctions during the Messianic kingdom. There's still Israel and there's still Gentile nations. There's still the nations. And they have their own kings, they have their own governments, they have their own economy, they have their own culture, and so on. There will be believers among them, it would seem, it would appear. But the, those cultures as cultures and those governments as governments are not the righteous culture and government that Israel is in that day. They will look to Israel uh, from afar and marvel. Thanks. I think you partially answered my question, Jack, but I'm still not quite clear. I think what you're saying, you can correct me if I'm misunderstanding you, is that when Jesus returns to usher in the millennial kingdom that you've been describing, I think you're saying that's the point at which all true believers throughout history will be resurrected? Throughout past history. Past history. Yeah, exactly. So if, if I die, for example, before that event that's the point at which I will be resurrected? Right. That's right. And, okay, but but some of the geopolitical realities that we're living in now will still be true. Right. Nations. Right. Although greatly disrupted, if I'm reading my prophecies, right? Okay. Greatly uh, thrown into confusion. If I'm dead, let's say this doesn't happen for a thousand years or whatever, where will I be when I am resurrected? Okay, I, I don't know, but I assume that we'll have the same kind of existence that Jesus has now and did uh, during the days following his resurrection. Remember, he kind of came and went. Uh, that's what it appears. I mean, the whole idea of being in a locked room and all of a sudden he shows up and then just as suddenly he disappears. What's with that? I assume that whatever the nature of eternal existence is at that point, I mean, I don't, my physics is not good enough. My modern physics is not good enough to be able to explain, does he go to another dimension of reality? Does he, does he flash off faster than the speed of light to Pluto or someplace? I mean, I don't know. I don't know where he is. So you're right. This is sort of a paradigm shift um, for me and maybe for a lot of us. Um, I'm still having trouble envisioning existence as a resurrected being in that, at that time during the millennial kingdom. I mean, an immortal among mortals, yeah. But notice that Jesus was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's any more, more problematic for us than it, mm-hmm. than it is for, for him. For, for there to be 100,000 of that type of being running around. Yeah, because I doubt if we're going to be here simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And, and if we are... Do we have the same needs? I mean, can I'm, I be in the middle of Death Valley without a water bottle and be okay? And, I, mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, and, and there, there'll be a, there'll be this huge, big, heavenly Woodstock that uh, that we will all go to. Well, and I, I I'm still going to have to chew on your 
paradigm and, and think about it more in light of other prophecies that, because I don't know if you were dismissing the notion that the future age will be free of pain and sorrow and tears and all of that, because I, I think that's pretty clear from Revelation. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. I, 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 don't, I wonder whether the idea that in the second of his space trilogy, C.S. Lewis has this perfect world where people die, but when they die, they're translated to the next level of existence. The point being that he has a perfect world that is not free of danger and risk and adventure and the need for courage and stuff like that. It wouldn't surprise me if our view of of a happy state where there's no tears and sorrow and joy is less interesting than the actual um, than the actual state that God creates for us. But I, I don't know what that I, I don't know what that consists of. So the difference between this millennial kingdom, in which I think you're saying all believers will have been resurrected to some state of existence. Right in order to experience that kingdom on this earth. Right, but not necessarily only from this earth. Okay. I mean, I mean what okay. I mean by that yeah. is we, mo- we may come and go in and out of it to experience it. Mm-hmm. We may not be here perpetually, I don't know. Okay, and then at some future point, Satan will be released, the nations will rise up, there will be the last battle, God will wipe out all of his enemies, and then we will be, we will enter the eternal kingdom of God as it will be for the rest of eternity. Exactly, yeah. Okay, I'm still going to have to think about how all that fits with stuff. Yeah. Back to my Sunday school teacher, right? (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a very different paradigm than the one I had for a long, 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 long time. Hi, Jack. I had to duck out for a second, so if you answered this as part of Karina's question, just let me know and we can move forward. I think I understand, I think you've presented a compelling argument that Hebrews 11 is not engaging with the heaven paradigm. But it seems that you're also trying to say that what he is engaging with, which is the messianic kingdom paradigm, is uh, incompatible with the heaven paradigm, that the two are mutually exclusive. Well, with the proviso that I, I think the messianic kingdom paradigm subsumes uh, many of the elements of the heaven paradigm. That, it, that it, there is a last stage of the Messianic kingdom paradigm that is very much like I've always thought I was, was the heaven that I was going to. So how, how are you making that step to, to integrate the two? It seems like you're wanting to integrate the two into a chronological framework. Integrating the two, what, what two? Why couldn't it be that um, there is a second heavenly sphere of existence that's happening simultaneously to now, but that there will also be a messianic kingdom in the future? Well, because I don't think it's consistent with paragraph 80, the the last two verses of chapter 11, because he says, it was better for us that Abraham not see the fulfillment of the promise, so that, uh, namely, that... um, they would not see the final fulfillment of the promise without us, he says. It's only by putting it sequentially in time that that makes any sense. And that, that is the difference in the paradigm, is I'm seeing that all of this is happening on one plane of existence, one plane of created reality. And so it has to happen uh, sequentially. You have the kingdom of God on earth, followed by the kingdom of God in heaven. You don't leave this plane to get to the kingdom of God in heaven and exist in parallel. To get here, you have to go through here. To get to the end, you have to go through the, heaven, the earthly kingdom of God that lies between us and the end. Could it be that a heavenly plane of existence exists, but that's just not the promise that Paul's talking about? And, and so, therefore, is not addressed at all one way or the other in any sense in Hebrews 11, you mean? Right. Well, I guess so, yeah. But why, if I don't connect it to the promise, the reward, the kingdom of God, what evidence do I have to believe in it? I mean, it could be. It's logically possible, but I don't know why I would believe in that. 
without, without biblical evidence. Thanks. Something that just jumped into my head was um, Abraham's bosom, you know, the, mm. the vision of Lazarus and so forth. But maybe that's just a... I don't even want to talk about that, but okay. he, was, he was talking about a parallel existence of a right. heavenly realm where they... Well, I can give you a short answer. Yeah. That's a fable. Okay. And so I don't think there's any description of a literal okay. reality happening there. Right. So. so just on a very practical basis, from original transcendent reality to the beginning of created reality to the choosing of the Jews to whatever the next step is, it was the coming of the Messiah and on and on to the eventual eternal kingdom of God, the, the vision that you held as heaven originally. Mm-hmm. What about some sort of a goofy, funky diagram or graph or something, you know, for us to look at? You know, those of okay. us that, you know, we've all seen those, uh, those things that were created in the, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, all these, yeah, you know, yeah. end of time unveilings, but they, they have all these cool, even drawings, you know, uh-huh. So um, tell you what, so I'll I'll sketch it out no, with not for with me. Stick figure. I'm not going to do it. You're not going to do no. it. <laughs> but all, all I'm saying is, wouldn't it be just nice to have a it, since yeah. since we're yeah. talking about uh, time as a direction, yeah, right, yeah, everything's going in one direction, yeah, uh, on one plane. Be, it could right. just be a line on a sheet of paper with some words above it. Yeah, I, I'd like to see that. Okay, you know, what's in your head? Okay. And be able to look at it. Oh, I'll give you the lines on the sheet of paper. I'm not going to let you know what's in my head. But <laughs> A couple just clarifications. Uh-huh. You talked about the messianic kingdom, and I heard other people talking about the millennial kingdom. Same thing. But, okay, yeah. but the messianic kingdom, in a way, continues on into eternity after the end of the Well, earth. I think so. Okay, now, so that would be... Um, yeah, I think so. I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any okay. passages that confirm that, but I, I may be wrong about yeah. that. I mean, because I, I do think that one thing that changes with going from the first stage of the kingdom of God to the second stage of the kingdom of God, when Paul writes in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, uh, slave nor free, and so on. That doesn't apply to the millennial kingdom. Okay. There will be men and women in the millennial kingdom. There will be Jews and Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. But there does come a, a point in time where, and, and it starts for those of us who believe earlier, I mean, I, I think we become, as Jesus put it, like the angels who neither marry nor, or, nor are given in marriage. I, I think we become like that um, when we are transformed and take on eternal existence eventually everyone will have that kind of eternal existence. And with that kind of eternal existence, there will be no distinction between male and female, Jew and Greek, Scythian and whatever. The other thing is, I'm kind of coming to grips with the idea that when we die, we just kind of, whatever, wait until we're resurrected. I kind of come to that. Um, But it seems like when Jesus returns and then we are resurrected and become like Jesus was, it seems like then there becomes a need for a parallel kingdom. Because if I'm going in and out of this one, okay. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. Somehow when Jesus actually returns and we're resurrected, I'm assuming then all the Jews that were mentioned in Hebrews 11, the same thing will happen to them, that Abraham will yeah. see the fulfillment yes. as we are. In the same immortal yeah. form. But it just yeah. seems like at that point there does need to be some sort of parallel Yeah, at least, at least I've... I've proposed that. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I really don't know. It, if anybody can tell me where Jesus is right now, then I'll tell you what we're going to do. Okay. 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 Thank you very much.